0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, I I read the history this week of the Yates pool. I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, but uh, it's a giant oil field in the Permian Basin. Uh, In this field, the Yates Pool has produced more than one billion barrels of oil, making it one of the largest in the United States. But as with any underground resource, uh, at one time, its riches were completely untapped. Uh, During the Great Depression, uh, this field was uh, owned, uh, it, it was a sheep ranch. Right, and it was owned by a man named Ira Yates. Uh, And because of his inability to make enough money on his ranching operation, uh, he was in danger of losing everything, everything that he had. Right, and so with little money for clothes or food, his family, like so many others during this time, uh, had to live on government subsidy. Right, day after day, Ira would sit and watch his sheep as they grazed over the rolling west Texas hills and he would rack his brain trying to figure out some way to pay his bills. One day, a crew from an oil company came to the area and they told Yates that there might be oil on his land. They asked permission to come and to drill a test whale, uh, well and Yates agreed, he signed a contract with them and uh, the company got right to work. Uh, at 1,100 feet, the drillers struck a huge oil reserve uh, and this first well came in uh, at producing 80,000 barrels a day. Right? But that was only the beginning Right. Many more wells began to come in at twice uh, uh, the production as the first one. Right. And uh, Things peaked for it in 1929 with a total of 41 million barrels of oil. Right. One of the, L, uh, the wells that year produced 200,000 barrels in one single day, which was a, a, a world record. Right. And almost a century later, Yates Pool remains active to this day with well over 360 productive wells. When Ira Yates purchased his ranch, he was more interested in uh, grazing land for his sheep than he was in the oil and the mineral rights. And So there he was, living on government subsidy all the while sitting on a massive underground lake of riches. He was a multi-millionaire living in poverty. We have been looking at Romans 5 through 8 this fall, uh, and we have come to what many believe to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. As Will mentioned to us last week, Romans 8 uh, is something like reaching a theological mountaintop. Right, we have looked at Romans chapters five through seven and it's sort of the hike up the mountain. It's really great, but, it, but it's, it's hard work. Right, in Romans eight then, it, it's the summit. Right, from here, we look out and we see the whole landscape of the gospel, right, assurance of salvation, life in the spirit, adoption into God's family, hope in suffering, God's unfailing love. Romans eight is truly remarkable. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to do, the reason that this chapter is here is to help us experience the richness of the Christian life. Many Christians, many of us in fact, live in spiritual poverty. Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life and that you might have it in its fullest measure. But too often, our experience of the Christian life is something far less than that, isn't it? How many of you would say that you lack a vital intimacy in your relationship with God? How many of you struggle in a regular way with feeling guilty and condemned? How many of you feel discouraged and defeated, powerless to defeat sin in your life? How many of you wish that you felt free from worry because you were so resting in God's love for you? How many of you wish that you were content with everything that Christ has provided in your life? How many of you wish that prayer was a vital, ongoing part of your daily life? I'm guessing that captures all of us. How do we experience the richness of the Christian life? How do we experience the abundant life that Jesus promises us? Well, the answer that Paul gives us here in Romans 8 is that it comes to us by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Romans eight tells us that the Christian life is life in the Spirit. And so as we walk through our text today, I want us to consider two aspects of life in the Spirit. Two things the Spirit enriches us with in the Christian life. And the first thing that we're going to see is that the Spirit gives us a new obligation. A new obligation. Now, if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It'll be really helpful and fruitful for you to follow along with us as we read in the text today. Romans chapter 8, it's on page 888 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. So grab one of those, open up to Romans 8, and let's look at it together starting in verse 12. Romans chapter eight, verse 12. The apostle Paul says, so then, brothers, and every time we're gonna see brothers here, he means brothers and sisters, right? So, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Let's stop there. As Americans, this is familiar language to us, isn't it? We're all well acquainted with debt. Whether it's a mortgage, or a car loan, or student loans, most of us have some kind of debt. And to be in debt means that you have a binding obligation to repay the money that you owe. And likewise, Paul says that as Christians, we have an obligation. But to what exactly? Well, he starts by clarifying what the obligation is not. Look there at verse 12. We are debtors, Paul says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The flesh uh, is just Paul's shorthand word for talking about our natural selves apart from God. And throughout the book of Romans, the the flesh is always contrasted with the spirit. We saw it just last week. Paul said, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And by setting up this contrast, Paul is saying that there are fundamentally two ways to live. Right, you can live according to the flesh, right, according to your own desires, or you can live according to the spirit. That is to say, you can live according to God's ways, God's desires. Right, and these two ways of living have two very different outcomes. Here in verse 12, right, Paul is telling us something vitally important about the Christian life. He says that for those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, you have been freed from sin's control. It no longer has mastery over you. A decided and irreversible change has taken place in your life. You are no longer subject to the demands of the flesh. This is wonderful news. It's wonderful news because living according to the flesh, Paul says, leads to death. Now I have found uh, that often the way that sin uh, starts in my own life is, is, is by just a simple passing thought, a sort of inner voice that says things like, you need this, right? this is gonna make your life better. Right? You've been working hard, you've earned a little indulgence, a little apathy, a, li- a little escape. You're entitled, you deserve it. The voice of the flesh says, what about me? When am I going to get some time to myself? When when are my needs going to be met? Why am I always the one making sacrifices? The voice of the flesh tells me that I'm completely justified in my feelings, in my desires. And when I listen to this voice and begin to entertain these thoughts, they morph and grow, sometimes within minutes, uh, into sinful actions, laziness and procrastination, isolating myself, jealousy, anger, being critical and judgmental of others, becoming overly confident in my own abilities and my sense of being right. I I want you to listen. There is no more surefire way of living a life of spiritual poverty than to let your flesh just have its way with you. Living according to the flesh leads to death. So Paul is exhorting us here in Romans 8. If you are in Christ, you are free from the tyranny of the flesh. And so why on earth do you go on living as if you owed the flesh anything? It has no claim over you. It has no rights in your life. You are not in its debt. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against you. The flesh has no authority to direct your obedience. You are under new management. And what is this new management? Look back at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are indeed debtors, but it's not to the flesh. Rather, we are debtors to the Spirit of God. If the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you, then you now have an obligation to the Spirit. What does Paul say the obligation is? To put to death the deeds of the body. Meaning, you have a responsibility, a duty to kill sin in your life. Uh, the verb that is used there for put to death, it's a present continuous verb, which means that Paul isn't talking here about a single action, right? There is no silver bullet that we can fire at the flesh and be free from its influence, right? This isn't a one-time thing. This is something that we have to do ongoingly, daily. It's, It's to be a continual source of our focus and energy. Do you want to move out of a life of spiritual poverty? Do you want to live into the abundant life that Jesus talked about? Right, well, Paul says, then you must be about the work of killing sin in your life. And it's important that we notice how we are to kill sin. All right, like, where does Paul say this power comes from in verse 13. What does he say? By the Spirit. It comes to us by the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is is to sanctify and refine us. The the, the Spirit renews our minds. He probes our hearts. He convicts us of sin. He he instructs us in uh, the ways of God through the word of God. He strengthens our resistance to the world and the flesh and the devil. He empowers us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. See, it is the spirit who empowers us to put to death the deeds of the body. But how does that work exactly? Like how do we put sin uh, to death? Uh, The Puritan John Owen, he has got this great book uh, called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. Uh, and in this book, uh, Owen talks about the, the necessity, the nature, and the means of killing sin uh, in our lives. It is, it is really helpful. And so I want to commend that to you as, as a fuller treatment uh, of how we do this in our lives. Uh, but uh, I just want to offer one point of application for us today. Killing sin starts by recognizing that sin is more than just a matter of behavior. It's more than a matter of behavior. It's about far more than replacing one behavior with another. Killing sin is about the heart. See, even though our flesh is no longer our master, it still seeks to build a stronghold in us, in our hearts, in our fears, in our longings, in our appetites, right? So the work that we are to be about, the work that we're to be engaged in as believers involves searching our heart, right? Dealing with our deepest motivations and desires. If we try to keep things at just a superficial level, the level of outward behavioral change, we will never make any real and lasting progress in killing sin. Focusing on surface behaviors will keep you in spiritual poverty. We must kill sin at its roots. And so I wanna offer just two practical ways to do that here at Providence. Uh, The first is this, get in a gospel community. I know you hear us talk about that all the time, but get in a gospel community. GCs are the primary place here at Providence where we are seeking to do this this deep heart level work. So if you aren't in a GC yet, we would love to help you connect to one. Uh, And for the majority of you who are in a GC, I want to exhort you, be about this work. Go deep in community with one another. Uh, And the second thing uh, I want you to know about is that we have a ministry of men and women that meet here in this building every Thursday evening called Providence Recovery. Uh, Recovery is geared toward helping one another examine and work through uh, particular stubborn patterns of sin whether it be substance abuse or pornography, lust, anger, you name it. And this ministry has been helpful for so many in our church and it's available to you as well. But look, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't settle for living life on the surface because the abundant life comes by pressing in to the matters of the heart. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us means that we are no longer obligated to live according to the flesh. The Holy Spirit frees us for a new obligation, or you might say, a new privilege, becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what killing sin does in your life. It helps you to become more and more like Jesus. We have a new obligation. But not only does the Holy Spirit give us a new obligation, he also gives us a new identity. A new identity. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Through the Holy Spirit, we are given a new identity as sons and daughters of God. We are adopted, Paul says, into the family of God. Our modern forms of adoption uh, in our modern society are really beautiful. Adoption today is usually reserved for a child who has been born into a family that is not able to fully support them. Right? And so they are adopted into a family who has both the means and the desire to, to take them in as their own, to provide all uh, that they need and to raise them as their own. Right? It's a really beautiful and important part of our culture. But this isn't quite what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. In the first century Greco-Roman world, you would have something like a wealthy landowner who is coming to the end of his life and he doesn't have a son, right? He has no heir. Uh, And so he would find another adult male, usually uh, the most trusted servant in his household, and he would hand over his name and his entire estate to this person. So through the legal process of adoption, This servant now had all the rights, all the responsibilities, all the privileges of a son. They went from a household slave to the master of the house. A complete reversal, a radical new identity. And this, Paul says, this is the image of what God has done for us in Christ. J.I. Packer in his great book Knowing God uh, said that the doctrine of adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The highest privilege that the gospel offers. Because you see, uh, the glory of the gospel is not just uh, that you are forgiven of your sin. It's not just that you are born again by the Holy Spirit. It's not even just that you are being sanctified and you will one day be glorified. Those are wonderful truths. Those are wonderful privileges for sure. But surpassing them, crowning them all is the fact that you are now God's child. You're adopted into the family of God. You're not left outside as a mere servant. You're not a hired hand God does not simply tolerate you. He delights in you as his child. Right? And this is why when the apostle John, in his first letter, when he's writing about the doctrine of adoption, he, he doesn't simply articulate it in cold propositions. He, coming off the page, it's like he's bursting out into song. Right? He says, behold, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Rebellious, hard-hearted sinners like you and me, now beloved sons and daughters by grace. We have been granted abundant life as God's children. And with this new identity comes new privileges. New privileges, look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The only person in all of scripture who is said to have cried out in this way is Jesus himself. In fact, this is the cry that Jesus uttered in the garden of Gethsemane. Right, his final hour had come. He was coming to terms with the suffering and the separation that he was about to endure on the cross. His soul was in utter anguish. And at precisely that moment he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Right, Abba, Father. It's the Son of God's cry in his distress to a loving heavenly Father. It's his way of addressing his Father in his time of greatest need. Right, no one, no one has had such access to God as Jesus, the only begotten Son. Right, but Paul says that now that you are a child of God by adoption, you too can take this same language on your lips and you can come to God with the same boldness and find help and mercy that you need. We can speak to God as his his beloved sons and daughters. We can come all the way into his presence, never hesitating because we fear our unworthiness, never checking to see whether we are qualified for his audience. We are God's children now You have his ear, you have his heart, you have unfettered access to God the Father. Sometimes uh, in the middle of the night, my four-year-old son, Hank, comes crawling into my room. He climbs up on my bed in his pajamas. He gets underneath the covers. He nestles his way in between my wife and I while we are sleeping and he just lays there. It's adorable, but it's also a little uncomfortable. At one time, uh, he woke me up, crawled into bed, woke me up, got right in my face, and he said, Dad, can you scoot over? (laughs) He has no shame. No hesitation, full confidence in approaching me. Why? Because he's my son, right? He has full access whenever he needs me, right? And as children of God, we have full access to God. Paul also says that we have assurance. Because of our adoption, we have assurance. We all struggle with doubt at times, don't we? Many of us wrestle with the question of, how do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I know if I belong to God? Can we really have any assurance in our relationship with God? Well, Look at what Paul says here in verse 16. He says, the spirit himself, the spirit of God himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In the Hebrew culture, uh, the testimony of two witnesses was required to establish a truth. And, And so that's what's being alluded to here. Right, and so one, Paul says that we ourselves are witnesses. Like children of God are being led by the Spirit of God. And so there will necessarily be evidence that we can see in our own lives of growing in obedience, growing in holiness, right? There's our testimony. And then in addition to that, Paul says that there's the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is a greater testimony altogether. I heard an illustration this week from a pastor that I think captures this well. Uh, He said, imagine you're at home with your parents, like think about maybe going home for Thanksgiving, spending time with your parents. You're there at their house and you're looking through some old photo albums together. And you're flipping through the pages and there you are as a toddler, there you are as a teenager, there you are as an adult, right? And you can see the family resemblance emerging more and more through each page, right? Same chin, same nose, same hair color, same eyes, right, there it is, clear as day. Objective evidence demonstrating that you are a child of these parents, you belong in this family, right? It's a deduction you're making based on what your eyes can see. But then he says, as you close the photo album, your parents pull you in, they throw your arms around you, Uh, and they tell you how much they love you, how proud they are of you. You see, that is a testimony of a far greater kind, isn't it? And that's what Paul says happens to us. There is the evidence that we can see on our own. We can see that we're beginning to love sin less and less, and, and sin is being reduced in our lives, and we're longing for the things of God more and more, Right, there's a progress in Christ likeness. Right, it might be modest and it is a struggle for sure. But that progress gives us real assurance that we are children of God. But then he says there's also moments of nearness. Right, moments of the spirit's embrace and comfort. Moments of his leading that affirm to us that you are God's child. Any counselor or or psychologist will tell you that having security in our relationships is so important. It's one of the most important things you can have in a relationship. And for those who are in Christ, there is no more secure relationship than our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So I I want you to try something this week. I want to ask you to do something. Every morning when you get up this week, spend a few uh, minutes reminding yourself that you're a child of God. When you wake up, each day this week, set a simple reminder if you need to, but remind yourself, I'm a child of God. Look at this passage here in Romans eight, in 1 John uh, three and four, in Ephesians uh, one and Galatians four. Just remind yourself that you're a child of God as you start your day. And then pick two other times throughout your day to stop and do the same. Remind yourself that you're a son, you're a daughter of God. Because here's what I think the degree to which you know and believe that you belong to God is the degree to which you will experience the richness of the Christian life. Right? The spirit of adoption brings assurance in our lives and then finally Paul says because of our adoption we can be sure of a coming inheritance. Look at verse 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. As children of God, we experience the privileges of our adoption here and now. Our adoption uh, provides us a a very present reality of those privileges. But Paul says there's also an aspect of experiencing our adoption that is still yet to come. There is a future inheritance that awaits us. As the son of God, Christ's inheritance is the whole universe, right? All that's in existence is Jesus's. Hebrews one says this, it says that the son has been appointed the heir of all things. And so when Paul says that children of God are fellow heirs with Christ, what he's saying, what that means is that we as God's adopted children will also come to share in the full inheritance, the full glory of Jesus. All that belongs to Jesus will also be ours through union with him. And the real wonder of this promise, the real wonder is not that you stand to inherit all things but rather it's that you stand to inherit God. God himself is the content of your inheritance. He gives himself to you. with with an intimacy and a wonder that far exceeds anything you could experience here. Certainly, we experience moments of fellowship with God, moments of intimacy with his spirit that are to be cherished and prized, but the highest moment of fellowship with God that you can experience here, it will pale, it will be eclipsed the day when you are face to face with Jesus, and you will have God himself as your inheritance forever. If you are here today and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, if you're exploring what you think about the claims of Jesus, I just want you to know we are so glad that you are here. We are honored as a church to have you. And I want you to understand that this is what Christianity is all about. It's not a set of rules. It's not about rituals. It's about adoption. And so as you consider the claims of Christ, now I want you to see that the heart of Christianity is about a God who adopts unworthy people and calls them his own. And you're invited. You're invited. This is open to anyone who would come to Jesus and submit to him as Lord. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, it is my great joy to tell you that you have not just been forgiven, you have been adopted. Your heavenly Father cares for you. He protects you, he provides for you, and he will not revoke your adoption. He cannot. And So I pray for you that the truth of your adoption would penetrate your heart today and that you would experience the fullness of life that comes from living as a child of God. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.